Howdy folks, Double J back here. Welcome back to Operation GCD. Typically, I'd be prescribing a shenanigan-infused jury into the mind of this particular garbage can dude. However, today's topic is of a much more serious nature. Perhaps you didn't know. Young men here in America are being drugged and murdered. I alleged this is being done in a ritualistic fashion through an organized network of folks. However, the facts speak for themselves. These victims are not accidentally drowning. And there certainly seems to be some occult ritualistic aspects with these deaths. Today's discussion, I'm a guest on Mario's This, That, and the Other show on Revolution Radio on Thursday nights. This conversation was recorded a number of weeks back. I joined Mario on this, that, and the other show to discuss the Oxygen TV Network show, Smiley Face Killers, The Hunt for Justice. In that discussion, Mario was an excellent interviewer. He watched the show, and I watched the show. He actually had some excellent questions, and I offered my professional investigative analysis on top of that, we discuss a few other aspects of the Smiley Face Killers, most notably my assertions that it's likely an occult ritual sacrifice of sorts. We also get into a conversation where I debunk the debunkers, the infamous FBI memo claiming they looked at it, the Smiley Face Killer theory, and the FBI claimed there's nothing to it. Additionally, there's an organization out of Minneapolis, Minnesota, one of the epicenters for this activity, known as the Center for Homicide Research. They took a concerted effort to produce a document debunking the smiley face killer theory, and they really don't do a very good job at it. I discuss it further in this discussion today. However, for an organ, I will say this about the Center for Homicide Research, for an organization that was formed in defense of a a uh, homicide victim who was gay. It's a gay rights advocacy group of sorts. One would consider this group would be more concerned when a number of the recent smiley face killer victims were apparent homosexual men. Anyhow, I will catch you all on the flip with that discussion where I'm the guest on Mario's This, That, and the Other show from Revolution Radio. Evening plebs, it's Mario at freedomslips.com, revolution radio, freedomslips.com, freedomslips.com. Good evening, broadcast live from the banks of Portage Lake, which is every week I say, every week I make up Google Earth, Portage Lake, Minnesota, you'll find the lake that's roughly 300 feet. And it's apropos because finally, after weeks and weeks, I think at least six, we finally get to spend all the two hours discussing the smiley face killer theory 
or hypothesis as something approaches with uh, an individual who has researched and discussed it and produced some of his own works. I welcome to freedomslips.com, JJ. Hello, sir. Mario, greetings, sir. Thanks for having me on your show this evening. They, no, thank you. Uh, we, we had a chance to talk off air, and last week, unfortunately, you were sick. But uh, I, I'm excited. Tra- tragically ill. Tra- tragically ill. Which you know, as my grandmother used to say, something is going around. So, so oh yeah, real oh. fast. So let's get into this. And as we talked, um, this is more your form than it is is mine. I, I, there are a number of questions that I have, um, and I think the best place to start is with you. How did you get involved? How is what you have researched differently or different than? Gannon, Duarte, Gilbertson, and the rest of the folks that are most associated with the Oxygen Channel uh, six-part series? Well, that's a great question, Mario. I uh, suppose my interest is very much as a result of those individuals. I recall seeing them on national media broadcasts. Something is going around. So, so oh, yeah. Around. Real fast. Oh, we still there? Yeah, sorry, we're still here. We're still here. Sorry. Okay, my apologies. I was hearing hearing some feedback there. So no, I uh, basically I back in maybe 2008, I saw Gannon and Gilbertson on national media broadcast discussing this this topic of the smiley face killers, and it, I'm not I'm not going to lie to you, it caught my eye. I was uh, at the time a military police in the United States Air Force, assigned to a headquarters unit in Texas. So I wasn't really concerned from an immediate perspective as an individual who frequented bars at the time who may fit that description. So, you know, these things caught my eye, but, you know, I definitely had friends in other areas and towns and my siblings and whatnot. And I definitely recall when I first heard about it, giving them a call and saying, hey, you know, be on the lookout. You know, apparently men are being drugged at bars now and not just women. So, you know, it's very much as a result of the stars of the smiley face killer show on the oxygen network that I have any interest in this, in the subject matter. So, so here's, so here's my question. And I've talked about some of the cases they've profiled and I, I don't want to talk about inconsistencies, but I, I suffice it to say that this originally started back in 1997, right? When Gannon and Duarte were Sergeant detectives out in New York. Is, is that where the, the evolution of this, um, an entire theory started at some point around 2008. Is that when they linked up with Gilbertson or how did that specific history start? If you know. Yeah, I believe you're spot on. I, I did read their, uh, they both Gilbertson and Gannon produced a textbook style forensic study on the matter called case studies and drowning forensics. And if anyone is interested in a greater study of the forensic aspects of these cases, I highly recommend that textbook. And I believe it is just how you stated Back circa around 1997, Detective Gannon and his partner, Detective Duarte, retired NYPD homicide detectives, began to notice a pattern forming. They later, after speaking and writing about it, connected with Professor Gilbertson of, uh, I believe, St. Cloud State University there in Minnesota, and they teamed up with him and years later have now tried to, I think they did an excellent job, to be honest with you, packaging a very complex theory 
and analysis into a six-part series on the oxygen network i would say they did they they definitely succeeded in trying to trying to you know convey the most amount of information possible in a complex case such as this without overbearing the the uh, the audience i guess okay so let's let's talk about the, the first show Dakota James, and I think it's, uh, uh, we both, I can safely say that in an, an hour-long show, minus commercials, you've got about 40-some-odd minutes to condense what essentially is a very large case um, into that 40 to 45-minute time span. <sighs> Obviously, fr- from my viewing of it, it, it appeared as if there were a number of things that were not addressed or alluded to that may have been uh, a possible explanation for what may have happened. And what what concerned me slightly was the fact that some of those things weren't addressed in a little more detail. And I don't know if that's because of the way it was edited, I presume, or if it was, you know how these things go. If it was too... Yeah, I know what you're saying, I think. And I kind of took that same aspect is maybe some things got cut on the editing floor and also perhaps some of it was just for dramatization so so here's my sort of over overall theory of okay so dakota james right so when they showed on on the tv uh episode the first episode that well if you could before i get ahead of myself could you just give a quick if you don't mind a quick overview of the the uh, dakota james uh um um situation case sorry yeah, Dakota James is an excellent case study. I, I can see why they started off there. It's very recent, and it, it hits a lot of the high points where a lot of these cases share a lot of similar commonalities. Dakota James, almost across the board, has every commonality. So he fits a very specific physical characteristics. You know, I know upon the initial media campaign of the subject by Professor Gilbertson and, and Gannon, Professor Gilbertson, was pointing out to her a Geraldo Rivera clip you can find on YouTube, but it's Geraldo. I believe it's Geraldo Rivera. He's asking the questions, and Professor Gilbertson points out that all of these victims fit a very specific characteristic profile as far as physical appearance goes. Not too tall, not too short, not too fat, not too skinny. And Dakota James would fall right within the kind of the bullseye of that. Of that, if you were to diagram the, you know, the the chart out the physical characteristics, height, weight, size, etc. he would fall right in the middle. So he's kind of the key key victim. They all look very similar. Like many victims look very similar in physical appearance to Dakota James. The, but on the, January... What, go ahead. No, I was going to say, but the one, the one difference about Dakota James is, wasn't he the only case in the sixth that... Uh, was he not of alternative sexual lifestyle? Was that the one difference? That was the one difference out of the Oxygen Network series vic- right. uh, these victims. However, he's not the only one, only oh. victim. That See, that, has- that would have been nice if they would have included that because once once that was out there, then the thought is, well, then this profile isn't really necessarily a specific profile. It's sort of now all over the map. Yeah, and I, I, I kind of I grasped that from someone coming into the subject brand new where they could see that when I was watching the show as well. So, you know, he, he was, um, he was a homosexual man and was involved in using gay dating apps as well. And I believe that was one aspect of the investigation. They definitely considered, uh, providing further, you know, investigation into, 
if that case is is turned that's kind of the, that's kind of the idea i got from watching the show because so, they still consider that case accidental so let me ask you this um gannon has gannon and i'll just when i say gannon and company i'll mean everybody so gannon and company have mentioned that there are roughly 350 of these cases spanning the last uh 20 years i would have said 200 plus but that i mean he would be the expert so um I, you know what honestly i'm just taking that from what there was the um uh the, what the daily beast article sure that that's where kind of most of my information is coming from now I, again i don't know how reputable the daily beast is but i presume it's fairly reputable since they spent a, a quite a bit of time discussing this but i th- even even on um well the dr phil clip which disappointed me because they disabled comments but on the dr phil clip i think gannon mentioned something around 250 or 350 total possible they've linked 250 there's uh, another a possible 100 more so if we use the three, I, I could see that for sure. Yeah, I mean, there, it, it's not it's not a dozen people, it's not eight, a ten people. You know, it's where many of the debunkers of the smiley face killer theory they like to try to attack it by saying, "Well, these people drown." You know, dr- people drown every day accidentally. You know, those people are doing water recreational sports. These individuals are at bars drinking with friends on a fun night out. They're not doing water skiing. They're not, you know, they're not at a lake involved in recreational activities. So I, uh, you know, I could definitely see it. It's, it's definitely well over 200 without, in my opinion, without a doubt. So of those, let's just say, let's say the, 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 this for simple math, let's say it's 300. So of those 300 people, the common traits, and we'll get back to Dakota in a second, but the common traits, white male, uh, attending college, athletic, um, I'm just going to say high intelligence because I know they mentioned these people are smart, but I don't know what that means. I mean, smart versus engineering, smart versus um, anthropology, you know, sure. highly, highly intelligent, um, which when we get to Tommy and Todd, I, I didn't hear those two, but we can talk about those um, when we get to them. So that's the commonality. You just mentioned earlier um, sexual lifestyle regarding Dakota James, and I was surprised to hear because it wasn't in the show that you had just said that he was not the only one. So out of that 300, oh, can certainly you, not. Can you certainly guess not. what the percentage would be? Uh, I don't know that I could, because quite honestly, I think this falls within one of the shortfalls of the public reporting of these cases. Okay. Since it's an accidental drowning, since it's a college kid who the local newspapers may not want, or college aged male, Understood. the local newspapers may not want to quote unquote out these individuals. Yeah. Makes sense. So I think a lot of that's one of the shortfalls I've identified in trying to determine exactly the question you just asked, the percentage of straight lifestyle versus a homosexual lifestyle. Now, I will tell you, there was another victim in March of 2016 in Columbus, Ohio, who was allegedly using another gay dating app at the time of his disappearance. And when he disappeared from a bar on a fun night of drinking with his friends and Later turned up, uh, almost three weeks later, in the Scioto River in Columbus, Ohio. And this was one of the first almost honest police investigations because from the onset, they identified he was dead, likely dead, before he entered the water. And that's another commonality in one of the cases that we'll discuss today from the Oxygen Network. One of the victims also showed that, that same disposition. So Dakota's at the bar. He he in the TV show. He is the, the family indicates that he's not a heavy drinker. 
Correct. Um, and I, I, I suspect they would know best. He leaves in the screenshots on on the television from the video you see him leaving and he uh, is wearing what appears to be a a darker sort of heavy coat now after the whole show was over my initial thought was okay what what's the excuse me what's the possibility of dakota simply walking falling in getting hung up by the coat he's wearing and that's what caused what the ligature marks on the neck that uh uh not cecil who was the 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 Wecht. Yeah, thank you, Wecht from from Philadelphia. He had noticed the the ligature marks around the neck and also the markings on the hand, which indicated somebody trying to pull or prevent somebody from choking them, presumably. So I guess my question yeah. is, wh- why that's, isn't that a possibility? No, go ahead, go ahead. I mean, why isn't that a possibility? I mean, I would have I would have liked them to at least address that and rule it out versus not even discussing it at all. I'll tell you right now why, the, from what I saw, why that's not a possibility. And it's from what Dr. Cyril Wecht analyzed as well, is that the decomposition of Dakota James's body was not present with a victim being in the water for 44 days. And I can say that with fairly, you know, cert, fairly distinct certainty because in the, and I thought it was an excellent interview within that program, the water rescue guys that actually pulled Dakota James from the water stated that they could, re- they immediately recognized it was Dakota James because he looked just like the photograph seen on the news. Now if a body's in the water for 44 days. I don't care what temperature it is. It's a river. It's always flowing. It wasn't frozen over during that time. So he's going to be moving there's going to be damage to that body. There's going to be, you know, there's, uh, again, it, in the case studies in Drowning Forensics book by Cannon and Gilbertson, they go into detail, Not obviously not on Dakota James, but on other victims, the degree of decomposition based upon a number of factors of time and temperature of the water, time in the water, temperature of the water. And there are certain things that would have already occurred without any doubt that would have made Dakota James unrecognizable when that water rescue team arrived. So there's no chance that he got hung up and was just on found for a period of time. Not a chance. No. And they, the water rescue team even discusses how quickly that water moves. And if he were to go in where professor Gilbertson recognizes there's a a nearby smiley face marking on one of the uh, overpasses there near the location where he was Dakota was found the graffiti is I believe press professor Gilbertson notif- not, um, states in the show is oftentimes at the near nearest man-made structure which this was the nearest man-made structure and the water rescue folks said it would have taken no more than 30 minutes to get from point a the man-made structure with the graffiti to point b where they pulled his body out of the water so that seems to indicate that he was recently put in the water. Now, if you go a step further in the Dakota James case, the police chief, the assistant police chief, gave a news conference the day they found him. Um, Dakota went missing January 25th, 2017, and his body was recovered March 6th. And on March 6th, it was a Monday, 2017, the police chief clearly states when asked by a reporter in the press conference – 
well, when did you, when did the police last search this area? And she states it was searched over the weekend. So within 48 hours, and that's another commonality in these cases, the area in which the body re- is recovered is oftentimes in a location that was already publicly known to be a search area. Okay. I'm, I'm going to no, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, I'm just saying that that would be the case here with Dakota James as well. Okay, so Dakota James is is at the bar. Uh, now, the 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 I forget was there or was there not GHB detected? Correct, there was. That's another commonality. So, upon initial inquiry during pathologies and medical exams, GHB is not oftentimes part of a regular exam, so then therefore is not tested for. But when these families go back and test a second time, have a second autopsy completed on their deceased family member victim, then it is then identified that these individuals have been drugged. Oftentimes with GHB, but in the case of Todd Guy, he was clearly drugged with a different incapacitating drug uh, set of drugs that would have equally, if not more so, incapacitated him more than GHB. Well, don't get ahead of me, JJ. Come on now. <laughs> Come on now. I- Try not to. Try not to. But no, 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 they, no. I got you. They all sort of know that it's good. It's good. Um. Okay. So he. So Dakota James leaves. There. There is um, surveillance of him. So I. W- I want to focus slightly on the surveillance. So here's my question. Again, I'm referring back to the um, Daily Beast article where Gannon talks about you know possible reasons why there is a cell or cells uh, whether they are communicating through the dark web. How they originally communicated, if you go back to 1997, you know, I'm not sure Al Gore, you know, had invented the internet at at that point, how how this communication worked. But the prevailing thought is these folks are somehow targeted, and you gave the the list of of commonalities. They are abducted. Uh, Most often their drink is, is, is spiked. They're abducted. They are held for a period of time. There is some type of uh, physical and or mental torture, and that's a, a paraphrase from um, uh, what's his name, uh, Gannon, who was uh, on Doctor Phil. Um, and Absolutely. then they're brought back to a a uh, they're they're put in a body of water which is fairly close to the location where they were abducted. So my question is. Out of all the surveillance in CCTV, in, in, in you know, uh, ATM cameras from across the street, has there ever been any forensic uh, analysis of that video to try to determine vehicles in the area or on uh, 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 camera prior to uh, or at the time of uh, the rough guest abduction? I highly doubt it in the Dakota James case okay. unless it was done by a private investigator because the police, by the nature of their operations, have ruled it accident. It's been ruled accidental, so they would have no – there would be no reason they would dedicate any resources to trying to answer any further questions with the case. So he's gone so, – so, but so why did they bring the individuals back – why is the body of water used and why is it, I mean, I, I guess maybe the simple question is to make it appear as if they drowned, but why risk coming yep. back yep. to the scene of the crime? I mean, if you watch any of the, 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 you know, the serial killer movies, you know, the biggest, the one thing you don't do is go back to the scene of the crime. I, why do they do that? I totally agree, Mario. You, you, that's an excellent assessment. 
I think what you're getting towards is why these locations, why yeah. these specific locations. I, I have also tried to answer that same question, and I have many ideas on that matter. However, I don't want to get too far ahead of us in this conversation, so maybe we can circle back to why these locations later later on in the conversation. I'm, I'm, I'm going to write that down, why these locations for a circle back. A circle but back. As, far as, as far as the bodies being dumped in a local body of water, it's, it's, it's almost the perfect crime. And I, and, and I say almost because it's taken, you know, Brilliant men such as Gannon, Gilbertson, Duarte, their their other partner, I cannot think of his name at the moment from the Oxygen series, that, that, have, that have put together this pattern of criminality and identified the victimology of, of these crimes and are trying to put together, a, a, you know, an ex- to prove it to folks. I would say they're trying to put together an excellent case study, but they've done that in their book, Case Study and Drowning Forensics. I don't think... Anyone who has an objective opinion on the matter can read that and say that they have not put together an excellent case study on the smiley face killers because when they anyone tries to debunk to debunk the theory or tries to criticize these men, they don't go after the science. They don't go after the forensics they put together. They go after the men or they go after the theory because these the, the book, the case studies they put together proves beyond a shadow of a doubt these men are being murdered. Now the question then becomes, is this a network of individuals? How do these individuals operate, et cetera, et cetera? Any, anything more we want to add or discuss about Dakota James before we move on to Luke? Luke Homan. It's Homan or Homan. Homan, I think. Um, because I have a specific thought on Luke that um, I know you're not going to agree with, but I have a specific thought on, on what happened to him. Sure, we can move on to Luke. That's uh, that sounds good. Okay, Luke, so, uh, Luke so, Coleman was uh, a much older case, September 29th, two thousand and six, missing three days before he was recovered. Which is different, right? The the, the time span between him missing and being found is, is is much shorter than at least the the, the upcoming and the previous. Um, I mean, the the most is seventy seven days, and that was the very last case. That was Todd, which aired last week. But the interesting thing about was was Brian Wellesley, and you're right; he is the most extreme case. And obviously, Luke Homan three days is not anywhere near 77. But I think looking at looking at it that way could be disingenuous, because without knowing the objective of the perpetrators, then it's impossible to tell whether or not those three days just happened to coincide with a specific date they were aiming for. And maybe the date for Brian Wellesley was further out, and that's what required the 77 days. Now, I think there's a lot of questions that, that, that remain unanswered before any conclusions can be drawn into why some victims are three days and why some victims are 77. Okay, fair enough, understood. So here's my thought on Luke. So there was drinking at a bar, fits most of the, the same description that we've talked about uh, earlier. Um, so there was a band playing, and there was, I think it was the drummer or a member of the band, was questioned regarding a possible alleged, confirmed, I'm not quite sure which, altercation that took place between Luke and perhaps a member of that band. Is that correct? Yeah, I thought that was a bit odd. I, didn't rem- I don't recall ever knowing that detail prior to watching the show. So maybe that was, it, it did, that was in the show. You did accurately describe that for, for sure. Right. And that was the same where they had the, I think, forensic photographer, uh, forensic uh, photographer, somebody, some forensic dude, 
uh, had looked and had deduced that the 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 print from the picture on Luke's uh, forehead matched the imprint of a boot. Sure, correct. They they concluded that it was somebody using pressure on their toe to to hold his forehead down. So here's my question: What is it not possible that Luke just pissed somebody off and it ended up becoming the old back alley beatdown? They left. He got up. He, obviously, you know, maybe he was suffering some malconcussion, a bit disoriented, wandered around, and just happened to fall into the river, and that was it. I mean, it's certainly within within the realm of possibilities that it was accidental. In theory, I think it is, given the description of his evening that you just described, and you know, just the general. He may have bumped his head, or you know, fallen down to get those bruises because he was. It, it seems that he was assaulted, and yeah. they concluded in the show that somebody held him down and used a, a boot to, on his forehead to hold him down. Now, the only thing I would say that that doesn't seem plausible to me that it was an accident is when they found his body three days later, it was still in rigor. Now, rigor mortis is pretty well defined as far as the onset and departure of it from from a deceased victim. So within two days that the rigor mortis should have been, you know, absent from his body and it wasn't. So there are questions like that. Again, when you get down to the forensic science of it, the, the, none of these cases are, are, are attacked on the forensic science. I think that's one of the things I thought was great about the TV show was focusing on the forensic aspects, including Dr. Cyril Wecht in, in the, in the program as well, including the experts. These, you know, they went around and spoke to the experts. You know, they included folks from a Bureau of Cr- Retired Investigators of the Bureau of Criminal Investigation, I believe it was from the state of North Carolina, to, to also analyze. So they had two different, uh, they approached those shoe, those shoe marks on his head from two different angles with two different experts. And I, I thought that that was a, at least a, an honest attempt at trying to, to conclude the injuries that had occurred to Luke Homan. Because... At the end of the day, the police never recognized the injuries. The medical examiner never recognized the injuries upon his initial discovery. So that, that, that's, I think, an important question. So, so wh- how is it that cases that, in the, in the Luke Homan case, um, you know, simple math, you know, 10 plus years, 10 years and some odd months ago, right, this occurred. How is it, and whenever this show was filmed, let's say within the last six months, how is it that somebody can look at a photo and deduce that that toe print or, or, or heel print from a specific boot, and that was never, never noticed um, during the original autopsy when you have the 3D body just sitting there in front of you. I don't understand how those things are missed. I, I don't. I, I think every case is different, but in many cases, it's the path of least resistance. It's the path of least resistance for the investigators. It's the path of least resistance for the medical examiner. What I am saying is these people have a ethical issue with honesty. You know, it's it's not lying, but it's not necessarily being honest. Are we gonna we gonna do we wonder how this Luke Holman got the injuries to his the top of his head, to his his hands, to his forehead, or is it easier? Uh, less resistance will be met if we simply rule this as an accidental drowning. No, no, I, I, I understand. It, it's just, it's a little it's, disconcerting when, you know, you, you watch the program and you see 
an individual just look at a photo and do whatever sort of analysis was done and then say, oh my gosh, it looks like this matches one of these two types of boots. And I haven't seen, I haven't, you know, I don't know if, if the sunshine law applies to whatever state Luke was found in. And I don't, I, you know, I don't know if you've obtained copies of, of, of the official police report, if that was ever indicated at all or the, or the autopsy from the medical examiner. I, I don't know. I, I have not. Uh requested any at least any of the reports from the victims cases in the forensic studies book or from the show most of the cases in the show were from the, their forensic studies manual however obviously more recent cases such as the dakota james case were not but you know the i think you know it's really it's it's the motivation of the of the matter though you know these investigators, these medical examiners, they can, you know, these are people that, that, that deal with facts. They deal with black and white, not gray areas. You know, there's some, there's things that fall within this gray area. If the victim appears at first glance to have been a drunk kid who drowned, it's easier. It's far easier for them to just conclude that than to try to address these gray areas that may exist in their black and white world. Yeah, that's I a, just. That's a better way to explain it. No, I understand. And I, to me, it's just, I don't know, I'm a forensic nothing, but I would tend to think that if I was trained in here and I'm looking at something, it's like, oh, well, this seems a bit interesting. Uh, you know, look, look, uh, uh, it looks like uh, there, there appears to be a, a, a boot print to the face. But, you know, again, I wasn't there. I don't know. You know, who knows? Who knows what, what goes on? You, JJ, you've alluded to a couple of times the, um, uh, the, uh, the debunkers of it. And I'm pretty certain that you've read... At least that uh, from the Center for Homicide Research, they refer oh, to Dr. Phil. So, so again, they list all those commonalities, and I don't think it's, it's it's you know what they are. So it's not really worth going over it. But what is your counter argument to you know those half a dozen or so more rather points that they make that say no, in fact, this is not anything regarding a serial killer. It just honestly is boils down to. Uh, certain people, uh, college age people drinking because college age people drink and they're near a body of water and they happen just to wander around and fall and end up in the river. And it's no different or body of water. It's no different than national averages from the South to the East to the North to the West. Uh, Mario, first of all, great question, but I'd like to, can we, can we delay that to oh, just sure, before yeah. these rest of the locations? Cause I don't want to get too far off the, the, the oxygen series case study, but okay, I, I'm sorry. I some, we'll come no, no, no worries. I have some great ideas for you there, and I, I know what you're saying. And and uh, yeah, I mean, there's it's easy to address certain aspects of these of the smiley face killer theory, like the Center for Homicide Research did, and they only they only address it independently. They they consider each factor independently and don't try to consider factors as a whole. In fact, I would actually argue that folks like the Center for Homicide Research never objectively reviewed anything they subjectively sought to debunk it from the beginning but i can i can follow up more on that no yeah it will come i got i got that as number four on the come around list as we like to say awesome awesome um Okay, uh, full disclosure, I did not watch the Will Hurley episode. It's the only one that I missed, so I have no idea what that what what that one was about. Well, um I don't, I don't we'll just, what, what, yeah, one, one more note before we go on to Will Hurley with oh, Luke Coleman. Yep. Now, Luke Coleman, uh, as depicted in the TV show, when Luke Coleman's mother accompanied uh, Gannon to the police station there in La Crosse, Wisconsin, 
he they they encountered a man who was involved not as an investigator but recovering Luke's body. So that uh, still worked there today now as an investigator in the Lacrosse Police Department. So while time has passed, many of the same people are still in, in positions or individuals those people have hired, and it gets very political when trying to dig up a second look, especially in a small small time police station such as a city of Lacrosse. It may be a metropolitan location, but it's not a large city. What am I missing about the Luke Holman case? Because I don't want to blend Luke Holman in. Was Luke Holman the case where they had, was that, was that, no. Which case was it where the Coast Guard was involved and they did, that was, that was Brian. That's Brian Wilson. Okay, gotcha. Got, okay, so yes, that's, that's the Coast Guard one. Okay. But that's um, a great example because that investigator is now the police chief. And I believe he's the police chief. He's still with the department. And he clearly had questions 19 years ago about Brian Welzine. But it's not always, even if you're an investigator who has an idea of what's going on or wants, has, wants to investigate the matter further, if you don't have a district attorney who's going to authorize these type of activities or a police chief that's going to back you, good luck. So in the case of Brian Welzine, that it seems like that investigator knew what was going on, had proper head on his shoulders, but was politically shut down. Was is is the Luke Holman case still? Is, did they reopen it, or is it still in the same status it was when uh, the show ended? Uh, when the episode uh, ended? To the best of my knowledge, the only case, and it was depicted in in the series, the only case that was switched to a homicide out of those six cases was Brian Welzine. That's All the other cases, I believe, are still under review. Okay, so under review as, as the, the medical examiner is looking at it, or it's still considered a, a, a closed case? It, this, the, the, it was an accidental drowning, nothing else? There's a few articles from local media reports from the cities of these victims right. that have come out since the series has you know, started or aired and have stated, like, for example, the medical examiner is currently reviewing this case. You know, essentially what the television program reports at the end of each episode. However, maybe a few more words on the matter were added in the local report. But it seems that there's a lot of political aspects being fought out in a lot of these jurisdictions right now. And do you think people are, well, no, let's, that, that's a, that's a come around to question. So I'm, I'm not going to ask it. I'm not going to ask it. We've got too many little well, circle back around questions. If we're talking Brian Welzine, you know, in his case being reclassified as a homicide, let's, let's discuss that and analyze that a little bit because sure. again, they, they use some pretty, what in my opinion is some pretty solid forensics and even incorporated some investigation with the coast guard to try to determine whether or not his body could have actually traveled from Chicago, 30 miles to Gary, Indiana, and to end up on the shoreline of Gary, Indiana. And it seemed that the Coast Guard determined that that was possible, but right. not in the time frame that he was missing. And there was additional forensics they used to prove, in that case, that it was a homicide. Right. So talk about, talk about that as I mute my cell phone. Oh, no problem. So Brian Welzine was New Year's Eve, 1999, college-aged uh, male student athlete, you know, top scholar, et cetera, et cetera, not a heavy drinker out with friends drinking. They even interview one of his friends that was out drinking with him that night who went searching for him. Once they realized that he was not back at their hotel room, he was with five or six friends, I believe. 
And when part of the group came back and realized the whole group had been together and then realized Brian was missing, they went searching for Brian that, that early hours of that morning on January 1st, 2000, around the streets of Chicago, and they came up empty. So you would think if their friend had gone and stumbled around drunk within the blocks around their hotel where he was last seen, that they would be have some success immediately scouring that area for any signs of their friend, which, to which they did not. Brian was missing for 77 days and was later discovered still in rigor, rigor mortis, with very slight decomposition to including like his, the, I believe the medical examiner, and as in most cases that were shown on the oxygen network, the medical examiners often noted that the organs of Brian were not decomposed. So this is another indicator that he was not dead for 77 days, that he died much later than the date he disappeared. I don't know the science because I'm, 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 in the notes that I have, some of the printers I have from the Oxygen Channel, it indicates that when he was found, he had a blood alcohol of 0.084, which is just over the legal limit to drive. I don't know. I'm not a toxicologist, so I don't know how how that plays, uh, what the rate of um, alcohol absorption or whatever the fancy sure. language is to leave a body over a seven, seven day period. So it would seem to me that that something doesn't add up. What, what, I, I, explain it to me, because I don't, I don't understand. Well, he de- well, now when a body does decompose, the ethanol in the body increases. So that's another difficulty on some of the victims that are, that are more decomposed than others, that determining when that victim was deceased. But in Brian's case, it seemed fairly easy. He didn't have, again, he's still in rigor. He died, you know, roughly two days prior they had he had lividity in one location across his entire back meaning he sat in an area sat he was laying in one location for longer than 10 or 12 hours for the blood to pool and the bruising to happen like that on his back meaning he was not being tossed around the turbulent waters of lake michigan he was not decomposed with anywhere close to the level of what he should have been had he been gone for 77 days. And I think most importantly in the forensic analysis of Brian Welzine's death was how the medical examiners noted a lack of water in his lungs and a lack of sand in his, in his um, breathing tubes. So that would indicate that he did not die in water coupled with the fact that he had lividity settled on his back would seem to indicate he died on land. And I don't know the science behind it, but the, the, the I think they said the temperature of the water was somewhere around just above freezing, 30-some-odd degrees. So I don't know what impact that has on decomposition um, or rigor or any of that. No, I it's, mean, you're the it would certainly be. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, in my opinion, from all my research over the years and into the matter, into the matters of forensic science and, and water deaths, you know, there would definitely be delays in the decomposition of the victim, but, you know, it's a very short amount of time during decomposition in the water where the victim loses their hair, skin becomes, uh, it's called skin slippage, skin is, you know, begins removing from, from the bone and from the body, and, you know, these, these items were not present. 
on Brian or in most victims that are found. There's very few victims where they've been in the water long enough for any of these things to happen. And it's just one more check, kind of a check mark on a list of items that I think that both Detective Gannon, Professor Gilbertson, and the local police department there, local investigator in the Brian Wellzine case, I'm sure that they discuss these check marks in a you know in a in a fashion of convincing the police department, look, here are one, two, three, four, five, et cetera, et cetera, factors of why we don't believe that Brian Wellzine accidentally drowned. And it may not be the one thing or the, or, you know, it's, it's the cumulative effect of all those factors, I think, that caused that police department to change their, their determination of his death. The one thing that did not sit well with me, two, two things from that, epi- that episode with, with uh, Wellsing was first, again, going back to the oxygen channel and what they reported, that the toxicology report came back negative for a variety of, of, of drugs in his system. He was never tested for the presence of GHB. But it right. also made me very uncomfortable just listening to the interview with his friend. I'm of the opinion his friend had something to do with it. I, I, that's just me. I've got no proof of it. it it's just sort of a gut feeling. It, it just, I mean, it's, cer- it's certainly possible. It just, he just seemed a bit... It just seemed that he seemed a bit, I don't know, sketchy, as the kids say on the street. He seems a bit. He seemed a bit sketchy. Well, I mean, here's the, here's here's the thing from my perspective. Once I identified that this was a phenomenon that was occurring, then my mind goes to, well, how do these groups form? How does that conversation start? Who do they incorporate? How do they recruit them? Now, if you start going down that path. You know, it can go in a couple different directions. It can go with they're being recruited by people pretending to be their friend, which you just identified. Right. Another path to be they're, they're opening and employing bars. They're the owners and operators of bars. You know, there's an old adage of attributed 100 years ago during the days of, you know, FBI chasing bank robbers, et cetera, of one famous bank robber being asked, well, why did you rob that bank? Well, he said, that's where the money is. Now, right. if your vic- victimology of your serial killer group or your death cult is looking for drunk kids, well, where do you go for drunk kids? You go to a bar. So if you're looking to, vi- to victimize these individuals, it would only make sense that in some aspects, these individuals, the perpetrators, own and operate bars. Right, and I'm, I'm, I'm adding to my list of 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 come back to questions. So now we're at number six. Come back to <laughs> right. questions. Um, well, I think else? it's certainly possible that some of these victims' friends could have been involved. Tommy Booth would be another example of that. And I believe what you just stated, of as far as a friend being involved, was the conclusion of both Gilbertson, Gannon, Duarte, and their entire team there that Tommy Booth may have been possibly been recruited into a smiley face killer group or cult and that those quote unquote friends of his, you know, led him to his death, you know, may have been some of the friends he was at the bar with the night he disappeared. I think Tommy Booth, because they kept on mentioning guns and and I don't help me remember, but I don't remember at all if within the Tommy 
No, it was the Tommy Booth episode. That's right, where they found the smiley face painted again. They found two of them, correct? And he was in the back of the back of the bar. Correct. Tommy Booth disappeared uh, on a night out drinking with friends at a bar in Pennsylvania, southern Pennsylvania, uh, just not far from Philadelphia. And that was January 19th, 2008, and he was missing for 14 days. And they found him in the back of the in the back the back stream or creek or whatever it was in the back of the bar. Almost within eyesight of the back door of the bar, about 40 meters away. Was there any, or in the forensic drowning book, did they discuss at all any forensic analysis of the smiley faces regarding the paint or how long they had been there? Because I'm just wondering how, if they had been, which I guess you really couldn't. Yeah, it's a tough one to track down. I yeah. think they did the best they could in the television program by emphasizing that was uh, an actual attribute of Luke Homan's death and disappearance was they found the orange flakes on his on his uh, clothing and it had coincided with a orange painted smiley face near the his, the location his body was allegedly put into the water. Tommy Booth was one of the two um, victims in this series that they did not spend any time on, to the best of my memory, discussing uh, athleticism or college education so i'm just i'm wondering how that plays into it um if the overall profile of these victims is what had been mentioned earlier college smart all that stuff i think you're spot on mario that's a great great analysis and i think that's why detective gilbertson uh, uh, detective gannon and professor gilbertson concluded that Tommy Booth was likely a recruit to the smiley face killer cult. Now, as you stated in the show, it's highlighted how he was more, he was getting into a group of friends that were involved in likely the sale of drugs, likely the sale of guns. Now, from my study of gangs, from my study of cults, that's precisely how they operate. Right. They sell guns, they sell drugs and they sell sex. Everyone's buying these. This is not a market that ever sees a decline in these, you know, these, these marketplaces and cults and gangs thrive on the industry of guns, sex, and drugs. So it only makes sense in my mind that if he was being recruited into this cult that he or gang, however you want to look at it, I think there is a psychosexual religious aspect to the gang. So that's why I call it a cult. But I can understand why folks call it a gang. And I think I think that Tommy Booth would be a prime candidate. So if Tommy Booth was uh, <coughs> being groomed or recruited, at Sorry some at, no, you're fine. At some point something happened. Could you, and again, it, it, you're 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 the one who I'm talking to, so I'm I'm gonna rely on you to <laughs> sure. to you know wax poetic on, on what possibly he could have happened. I mean, was he was was he gonna was he gonna squeal? I mean, was he was he gonna rat him out? I guess. I mean, that's certainly the aspects that Gannon and Gilbertson have have stated over the years since his death in their numerous interviews or their textbook they completed. He, Tommy Booth is in the case studies book, and this was some of the analysis they gave in there as well that that they used to to dramatize in the television show that he was being recruited. I liked how they interviewed, you know, some folks from his life 
It brought more elements from the book to life, obviously, on some of their conclusions. And it seemed like his, his family agreed with it. It seemed like he had made a call to his uncle, who was a retired Army colonel, and it was expressing to him that he was involved with some dangerous folks and, and, and involved guns and the sale of guns, it sounded like, and that he was looking to skip town. Now, this from the rest of the you know conclusions drawn by his employer and his mother, that it didn't sound like that was within his character to just skip town. But yeah, but so yeah, I mean, then it goes back to the old, um, you know, the old thought that the parents really know what their kids are up to or what they're what they're doing. But again, I don't know. I mean, it's it's it, it was one of the more Tommy Booth and uh, Todd, the very last one, are probably two of the most interesting cases simply because there were there were major factors involved that align with the theory but all i'm not i'm not going to say contradict but also well i guess address what you just said is that you know in, in fact he he wasn't be, he wasn't a, a victim because he was targeted he was a victim because he was targeted as a as a uh, new recruit Sure, and then part of the I term, mean, part of the term. I think Todd Guy could yeah. follow. Um, go ahead, go ahead, Mario. Go ahead. You know, I was going to say, and then one of you know, it, it's it's on the list of you know, we're going to come back around to questions is ultimately you know, how do they determine these people? Um, yeah, it's a great question, I, and I, I think Todd Guy could fall within that category as a possible recruit as well. However, you know, for my for my analysis of 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 that victim, Todd Guy, it seemed that he did meet the physical characteristics. He was an intelligent individual. He was highly skilled. He was athletic. So there was certain aspects that he would qualify, I think, for. Now, in the case studies in Drowning Forensics book, once again, they go into, the team of investigators go into greater detail on even some suspects, I believe they identify. There was a cocaine dealer that perhaps Todd had an entanglement with the week prior to his death. And that cocaine dealer was from Lansing, Michigan, and was allegedly at the house, at the orchard party that Todd disappeared from. So, you know, we go back to if this is a gang, this is a call either way, they're operating, they're making money from the sale of guns, drugs, sex. So a cocaine dealer, I would expect to be right in the wheelhouse of the smiley face killers. So we got about two, you're going to stick around for the next hour, right? Oh, absolutely. We got to okay. go into Todd Gibbs some more. Yeah. And I'd like to ask you if Tommy Booth wasn't a victim, where do you think he may have been for 12 to 13 days? Shit. I don't know. <laughs> but you see, you see, I'm getting at so like, it's easy to say these folks aren't victims, but then the next logical question is always, well, where was he for this amount of time? I, 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 I do not. Obviously rhetorical in nature, but. No, no, I got you. I mean, it, it, I, the, the top guy situation is very interesting because I, th- I don't know if I mentioned this to you when we did our test call or what have you, or I, I, I sent you a, a tweet about it, a direct message. But the, the two factions is there's sort of an ownership. It's the smiley face uh, a killer uh, 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 proponents, or it's the David Politis missing 411 proponents, and you both – have ownership of this person. And I only know that because when I Googled his name, I ended up on a YouTube clip where he was into that category of, um, strange disappearances. And I think David, sure. Clytus in one of his books, four one one 
mentions Todd Gabb. And it's interesting, 77 days, and if you watch the episode, and we'll get into this, the usage of the pigs. Oh, I mean, I thought that was a fantastic forensic analysis of the situation. I thought that it was incredibly disgusting, but it was very interesting. It was was disgusting, but maybe I'm just immune to watching some of that stuff because I honestly got, when I saw him putting pigs in the water, I got a little excited. I was like, oh, that's a great test. As you were eating your pulled pork sandwich. Right, exactly. (laughs) So we've got about a minute or so before the top of the hour break. Um, Anything you want to recap of those first four, uh, five, I'm sorry, uh, episodes? I think we did a good analysis there, Mario. The only thing I would say is the David Politis book on Missing 411 incorporates the Sobering Coincidence, I believe is the title. Right. It incorporates many of these cases. In fact, a few of the ones we've already discussed in the first five, besides Todd, are victims listed in that book. I think the man has done an excellent job in compiling data on the victims and some additional details. However, I don't believe for a moment these individuals are falling into some sort of black hole, which I believe. No, yeah, revolutionradio.com will be exactly right. So I don't think that's the case. However, I will say from a positive aspect, David Polites great amount of information why are you guys so anti-dictators uh, imagine if america was a dictatorship you could gotcha. let one percent of the people here, so the have all time, the nation's uh, wealth you, folks you could help us. your rich friends get richer the by the cutting their taxes and bailing them out when they gamble and lose you could ignore the needs of the poor for health care and education your media would appear free, but would secretly be controlled by one person and his family. You could wiretap phones. You could torture foreign prisoners. You could have rigged elections. You could lie about why you go to war. You could fill your prisons with one particular racial group, and no one would complain. You could use the media to scare the people into supporting policies that are against their interests. Tune in Monday through Friday, 4 p.m. Eastern Time for Liberation Nation with Deacon John, where America comes to hear the truth. I know this is hard for you Americans to imagine, but please try. Ohio Exile Politics will be on from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Studio A. Mark Steyer will have guests on that will discuss many important topics, including the state of the world today. However, much of the show will be dedicated to the writings of Edward Albert Meyer. Let me read a short passage from one of his writings. Love is the highest principle of creation, and through it, everything exists in absolute logic. All of nature in its indescribable splendor is nothing but the love of creation, which is expressed visibly. The love of creation is everywhere, because without it, nothing at all would be able to exist. Please join Mark on Ohio Exopolitics from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Studio A. It is no secret that the so-called mainstream media is best described as controlled propaganda. 
countless news stories are either totally ignored or spun with half-truths, and because of this, essential facts and vital information are often compromised. Join Dr. Ott every Friday night on Studio B at 10 p.m. Eastern and learn why the story behind the story was nominated for a Peabody Award in its second year of producing Unparalleled Broadcasting Excellence in 1997. That is, if you really care about learning the truth. Transcending time and space, let us take you to the place inside your mind where thoughts divide and mysteries unwind. Join us every Monday evening right here on Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. And you will catch the Fenton Perspective with our great host, Lorian Fenton. Come listen in as she shares her amazing stories from the past to present, along with all of her guest secrets to the future. That's the Fenton Perspective every Monday evening right here from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time, only on Revolution Radio. Oh, and uh, you don't need to expect us. We're already here. February is Heart Month. Every year for the month of February, to show our appreciation to Extendivite's faithful customers, we have a sale. If you would like to try Extendivite, now is the time to get a few months ahead and really give Extendivite the time to show you how it works. Most of Extendivite's long-term customers wait for this sale to stock up. People and doctors tell us about the unbelievable improvements that they have experienced in their overall health, not just the heart. Extendivite wants you to experience the power of these herbs. Get a four-month supply for only $115 for either the capsules or tincture. Please take advantage of this once-per-year sale and get healthy for life. To order, call 1-877-928-8822 or visit heartdrop.com or find us on Amazon. Extend your life with Extendivite. The opinions expressed on this radio station, its programs, and its website by the hosts, guests, and call-in listeners or chatters are solely the opinions of the original source who expressed them. They do not necessarily represent the opinions of Revolution Radio and FreedomSlips.com, its staff, or affiliates. You're listening to Revolution Radio, FreedomSlips.com, 100% listener-supported radio, and now we return you to your host. Or visit heartdrop.com or find us on Amazon. Extend your life with Extend Overnight. Opinions expressed on this radio station, its programs, and its website by the hosts, guests, and call-in listeners or chatters are solely the opinions of the original source who expressed them. They do not necessarily represent the opinions of Revolution Radio and Freedom Slips.com, its staff, or affiliates. You're listening to Revolution Radio, FreedomSlips.com. Thank <laughs> you. 
proponents and researchers, um, resident experts, I would gather, regarding the smiley face killer theory. You've discussed... You still there, JJ? Absolutely, Mario. Sorry. We've discussed Dakota James, Luke Homan, uh, Brian Welzine, and Tommy Booth. Um, Will Hurley was in there as well, but I did not watch that episode, so we sort of bypassed that one. We've discussed five of the six. A little bit about Todd Geib, um, and that's where we ended last hour. Let's let's pick up with Todd, which which again I thought was one of the more interesting cases, simply because of the total amount of days that he was missing before his body was found. Certainly, certainly. Uh, Todd Geib, a resident of Casanova, Michigan, which is about an hour north of Lansing, yeah, fifty or sixty miles or so. He disappeared. June 12th, 2005, and was missing 21 days. Long time to be missing in the summer months for their, um, this is, I'm sorry, this is a unique case because this is a victim in the summer months when most victims are in the cold months. The, the one thing about, about Todd is the fact that when his, the, the way in which his body was found in the, do I dare say somewhat pristine condition of his body? Exactly. Yeah, that's one of the most mysterious aspects. You know, not only did anyone in within the police investigations attempt to answer the question how exactly he got there, because the area between the party he, party he disappeared from and the adjacent lake that he twenty one days later appeared in, you know, there's a quite a bit of brush. It's not exactly a clear area for him to go from point A to point B. So, you know, the terrain would indicate that there'd be markings, thorns, brush stuck in his clothing, possibly marks on his skin. And none of those were present in, like you said, the nearly pristine body of Todd Guy. And one of the most, um, I'm going to use a word that's not a real word, but one of the more forensic aspects of that show, I thought, was the usage of the pigs. Oh, the tests that they conducted with the pigs to show that there's no way Todd Guy was in that lake for 21 days was nothing short of brilliant. I thought that was an excellent study. Again, it's one of the things I can say that I enjoyed out of watching the series is the incorporation of experts such as the bug ex- expert that they used to conduct the study. The entomologist was used to conduct the study of these pigs, using these pigs. The one thing that is most interesting about this case is it's the only case in the five that did not take place at a quote-unquote public location. I mean, it wasn't a bar. Sure, sure. Right. Uh, no, that's correct. He was, he was definitely at a, uh, it was a town party of sorts, and m- many people at that party were, as depicted in the television show, had briefly... Uh, attended a bar that evening uh i can't recall the name of the bar it's it's in the tv show but they interviewed one of the bartenders obviously not the bartender then 
but she knew she knew the victim and she was a you know clearly you know uh i think that indicates in my opinion you know from what i saw just goes to show how small that town is you know it's yeah. not you know everyone knows each other there the man grew up in the town he was he disappeared less than a mile from his home on a walk back home from a party he knew precisely where he was an annual event been there and partied in that orchard numerous times so for todd guy in my opinion to disappear from that that in and of itself strongly suggests foul play man knew where he was going you know this is this is not even taking into consideration that the dogs used to track him actually followed his scent towards the path back to his home yet he was discovered in the opposite direction of the party again yet another indicator to suspect foul play yeah, because in the show they they they, they walked the path of the dogs, and, and, and if I remember correctly, the dogs lost the scent at essentially the road or the T in the road. So the thought was, uh, dragged, escorted, whatever it may have been, and then brought uh, someplace. Certainly, and I think it's uh, Todd's another tragic case study here, and the activities of the authorities that are entrusted to effectively and efficiently you know, conclude how this individual died and locate a missing individual. They didn't do either one of those in the, in the case of Todd. In fact, the local authorities seemed more inclined to convince Todd's family that he had been, uh, hidden by an automobile and buried in a shallow grave. Now their only evidence of that was someone told them that now that's not, in my opinion, is not a very good investigation. Now, once his body was recovered, the, the ruling was uh, of his death and manner of his death was ruled at an accidental drowning prior to getting all the variables and prior to getting the toxicology results and prior to conducting any sort of investigation to find out where this man was for three weeks. So th- th- it's very tragic to watch for me to watch a case like Todd Gibbs because of that, because there's just some gross negligence involved. Now, the one thing I can say about the TV series is I thought they remained professional and did not highlight the, the gross negligence, rather focused and highlight the areas where they could just prove it. They didn't concentrate on saying, look, these guys did an awful job here, here, and here. They said, look, we can do an awesome job by showing you this man was murdered by doing these tests. One of those tests were detecting the bugs that would have accumulated on Todd's body while it stayed in that lake for 21 days now the conclusion of that as depicted in the show clearly indicates that todd guy was not in that water for 21 days solely based on the algae and bug evidence alone if you were to ask me i'm glad you i'm glad you mentioned uh, that they focused strictly on the case because i felt kind of backtracking just a bit that in the first two episodes specifically dakota james and luke holman i had thought that Gannon and company were a bit too critical of Pittsburgh and Lacrosse PD. It was just, just, just my opinion, and I could be wrong, and maybe I am wrong, but I thought they were maybe just a bit too. Not that it wasn't warranted, perhaps, but I think yeah, a bit too critical. I would agree with you there, and I, I, I honestly think part of it was warranted. For example, the especially relative to Pittsburgh. Now I'm a Cincinnati native, and Cincinnati and Pittsburgh. You know, they have a storied history of hating one another, be it the football teams or the towns in general. But I will criticize Pittsburgh, not related to that. I will criticize Pittsburgh on just related to the details of the Dakota James case, because 
you know, the press conference where the assistant police chief was making an announcement that they discovered Dakota James in the river, they didn't even call his family. They just had the press conference. That's how the family found out. So that's, that's, that's not a good, that's not, that's not a positive thing in your manner in which to conduct business, to have a community trust your police agency or your district attorney. Now, both, I think the district attorney less, more so the police, I think have been um, a, a of certain things like that with the Dakota James family. And I base most of that opinion off of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette's series on the Smiley Face Killer's theory. Their crime writer for the local paper in Pittsburgh did an excellent expose. I think maybe a five or six part, possibly seven part series, podcast series, interviewing the James family, interviewing uh, another victim from Pittsburgh's family. There's multiple victims in Pittsburgh, not just Dakota James. So they went into some greater detail with some other victims. But in, in the conversations with the James family and in the, the uh, Pittsburgh Post-Gazette's writer's conversation with the, he's a host of the podcast, um, his conversations with the police and the district attorney, I think it all, you know, putting together an accurate sight picture from those three areas you know, I think there was a, a great amount of disservice done to the James family, and I think there's a great amount of service done to other families um, that are that their family members fall victim to the smiley face killers. Are you? We talked about Brian uh, Welsing in the thought that I'm sorry, Tommy Booth, in the thought that Tommy Booth was pro- your opinion is he was probably being recruited. I mean, I would agree with the assessment by Gannon and Gilbertson that they concluded that, and it seems like an accurate description. Do, now, what are your feelings regarding uh, Todd Geib? Recruited or victim? I would, be victim. On the, I would be on the fence there because, and I say that because the Gannon and Gilbertson case studies in drowning forensics certainly identifies some of their more... Uh, analytical details of on the ground people they talk to folks at the party you know some of this was was dramatized and redone i think for the tv show but they did this years ago closer to the disappearance of todd guybe and got a more accurate description of the atmosphere that he was in the night he disappeared and i believe they concluded that he may have been on the wrong side of a gang of drug dealers possibly a gang of drug dealers but most certainly at least one cocaine dealer Right, which may explain the fact that, again, most of these, again, going back to the original 300 number that we used at the beginning, uh, that most of these victims were abducted from, you know, public bars, locations, a lot of people, what have you, you know, surveillance. Uh, Todd was hanging out in a field that, you know, unless there's something that I don't know about, there there is not any uh, uh, way to provide any sort of video evidence in the in the ability for the 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 seller cells to to target and track this person would be most difficult. So that's why my thought is probably the the recruitment side. But again, I don't know. I don't. I mean, it's certainly possible. And if you were to look at it just how you you explained it, I think that's a that's a pretty accurate analysis but you were to take into consideration the location which todd disappeared from and the location in which todd was found that may provide a slightly different analysis to whether or not todd could have been a victim or could have been a recruit he may have been a victim 
of being in the right place at the right time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe. It may not be a bar, but he may have been in the proper location that this group of killers was looking for. So, I want I want to say, save enough time as we need to not only discuss those come back around to questions, and also you had sent me a specific article where I had thought you did a very interesting link between um, the cult and, and, and what's going on with, with, with SFK or the smiley face killer, but is there anything else that you want to or we should discuss regarding these these six these six cases that were profiled on the, on the show? Now, I feel like we, uh, we, we did a good job describing those six cases and kind of analyzing the, the most compelling evidence yeah. that, was, that, was, that was shown. So are you ready for the come back around two questions? Absolutely. Let's do it. Okay. So the first one is this, is wh- why these specific locations? And honestly, I wrote it about an hour and a half ago, so I have no idea why I wrote why these locations. So you may have to so help I, me remember. You know, I think that's the next logical step. So we discussed the victims the analysis of some of the evidence and forensics behind why, you know, these victims were murdered as opposed to, you know, accidental drownings. Right. And not the least of which is many victims who have been deemed accidental drownings have dry lungs. But, you know, on top of that, you know, I think the next logical step in that thought process is why these locations? Yeah. Why, why is it occurring in La Crosse, Wisconsin and high volumes why is it re- occurring in Euclid, Wisconsin, in a high volume? You know why? Why do why do more college-aged men drown in cold climates in the north as opposed to warmer climates in the south? Yeah. You know, I I, I, I thought all of these as well, and uh, my conclusion on that matter is these men, these smiley face killer victims, are appearing the locations that they're occurring at just happen to be the same precise locations of human sacrifice in ancient America. So what I'm inferring in my analysis, as far as why these locations is, it seems that individuals of occult nature who follow occult practices, occult teachings, possibly some, some more ancient religious thought, thought processes, the, or philosophies, these Someone today is is rehashing some of these same principles in conducting human sacrifices at the same locations as the ancient past, and these human sacrifices are the smiley face killer victims. So I so help help me help me give give me a quick brief history because I don't know what what happened historically regarding human sacrifices in you know Eau Claire in Pennsylvania in Michigan in you know those areas. What 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 but, what went down? Oh, great question. Most folks don't. It's definitely a history that has been um, secluded from mainstream history here in America. But the nation of America and many states have all been formed. You know, important sites, uh, important locations, important buildings have all been created and built upon ancient Indian mounds, quote unquote, Indian mounds. Um, many of the Indian uh, cultures will say they never built them. These are just terminologies we've described them as today. Obviously, these are the plots of horror films by Stephen King, such as Pet Cemetery, or you know, other horror films such as Poltergeist. The, the other Stephen King was The Shining. You know, these are all ideas that these the plot of these horror films is they're built on 
Native American burial grounds. So we call them Native American burial grounds, but if you get down to the details of these sites, these quote-unquote burial mounds, and it's commonly described through modern-day scientists that these were acts, the, the folks buried in these mounds were acts of human sacrifice, male individuals within the culture. You know, years past, they thought these were individuals that were passing through the, the mound-building culture, and they were sacrificed. No, these were have now been identified as folks within that culture. So this was a, a practice of human sacrifice that was done within a culture who built these mounds in years past. Now, we have many groups today that venerate these mounds, not the least of which are folks like George Washington, the folks who started America. They started America on these mounds. And states, you know, the first state of in free America after you know the, the Revolutionary War was Ohio. Well, Ohio's state house that sits in Columbus, Ohio today was built on a mound. That mound was destroyed and used as the cornerstone of the state house. This is a common practice. This goes all the way to Colorado, maybe 18, we'll call it 1840. You know, the, the individual who's starting the state of Colorado is starting it, building the structure on a mound. They do a ceremony, these kind of things. You know, fast forward to other aspects of American history, the Wright brothers, the folks who invented flight. This, this occurred on a mound in Dayton, Ohio. Um, the Federal Reserve Bank started in 1913. Well, this was, this was started on a mound in South Carolina, Jekyll Island, you know, and, uh, you know, there, these aren't the only groups. There's obviously other groups, secret societies, the International Order of Oddfellows, the Masons, the Jesuits, Walmart. The company of Walmart has intentionally built a high number of stores on Indian, on Indian mounds and you may think that's out of convenience. It's not. They've actually fought two court battles in which to accomplish that. So these, these sites are very important in our history of America. However, they've been erased. But what, 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 they, what we do know about them is that these were sites of human sacrifice, many of them, most specifically effigy mounds, which the highest concentration of effigy mounds will be found in Wisconsin throughout the entire world. will be found in Wisconsin. In Minnesota, where do we see some of the highest volume of SFK victims? We see them in Wisconsin. We see them in Minnesota. So all I'm asking is, if is in this smiley face killer theory, if the, is the location important? It seems to be. And if it is, why? And what used to occur at these locations before? Well, mounds, human sacrifice used to occur at these locations. So all I'm asking is this today a modern-day iteration of human sacrifice. Have you broached this topic or attempted to contact Gilbertson or Gannon? Not at all. Not at okay. all. In fact, it's difficult to... <laughs> uh, I'm just beginning to formulate... Like, these ideas have been, you know, bouncing around my head. I used to travel a lot, for example, across the U.S. <clears throat> I've visited thousands... I'll say hundreds of mound sites. Mm -hmm. Probably over a thousand... And there used to be millions of these sites. I mean, the locations obviously still exist where mounds used to be, but I'm saying there used to be millions of mounds. There's only thousands, hundreds today. And I began realizing that not only did my, my study into the mounds started coinciding with the same locations I'm visiting to see smiley face killer victim locations. For example, La Crosse, Wisconsin, Riverside Park, 
Luke Holman was found just off of Riverside Park. There's six or seven other victims that are found in the immediate vicinity of that area. And Riverside Park happens to be the location of numerous mounds. Now, many of them are no longer there today, but thanks to folks like Lieutenant Zebulon Pike, as in Pikes Peak, Colorado, he drew an extensive map of these mounds on a mission as part of George Washington's secret society that started this country, the Society of the Cincinnati. So this secret society drew an extensive amount of surveys and maps of these mounds. They had guys getting in canoes and going, going down river to all these various cities like La Crosse, Wisconsin. And the survey that Lieutenant Pike conducted was not of this is the optimal area to settle. He, he went to La Crosse, Wisconsin and drew a survey of the mounds. That was his mission, or at least one, one part of his mission. So is it so, safe to, Oh, good. Well, no, because th- what you have just, you know, so eloquently described over the past few minutes, to me, is 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 very interesting, because and I'm going to refer back to that the Daily Beast article, where Gannon talked about that in the time they started investigating this in '97 over the course of the past 20 plus years, they've they've had a greater uh, understanding uh, of the sophistication of the group. And if there is any validity to what you've just described, that would take a hell of a lot of work just to, to you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I, if you were to ask me, I genuinely, I don't, this isn't some wild theory I came up with yesterday. This is <laughs> something I've been working on for years. And like I said, I'm, I'm beginning to understand how to articulate it to other people. And, uh, you know, as you mentioned, I've written some blog posts about the subject and I've, I've right. had conversations. I, for example, I recorded a conversation about a year ago with, with William Ramsey, who's mm-hmm. completed a, an excellent documentary on this subject that's available online. And, you know, so I'm, I'm still beginning to, to kind of work through these details, but, you know, uh, it wasn't just the fact that I was visiting mound locations and smiley face killer victim locations at the same time. I was analyzing some of the earlier details released on the subject. For example, and I'll use the debunkers example here from the Center of Homicide for Homicide Research. They used, they uh, identified the term Sincenoa that was one victim disappeared from a road last seen on Cincinnati Avenue. He was found uh, at the confluence of Cincinnati Creek and the Mississippi River. Now, the, uh, allegedly, Cincinnati was part of the graffiti at one of the Lansing, Michigan victims, not far from where Todd Guybe was found. You know, and Cincinnati means rattlesnake in, in Native American. Uh, mm-hmm. The you know the ancient language that of you know that is associated with these mounds, rattlesnake. For example, rattlesnake mound and one of the larger mound sites still available to go visit in Cahokia, Illinois, which is just across the river from St. Louis. It's East St. Louis, Illinois. Mm-hmm. One of the mounds at that large site, rattlesnake mound, Cincinnati. Well, that was one of the largest human sacrifice sites in that entire city. So. Connecting the mounds, human sacrifice, and other elements of the smiley face killer theory is not just a geographical location thing. There are other details that suggest the connection. 
Now, the Center for Homicide Research said that since Senoal was too frequently known across the Midwest and therefore not connected, but there's no mention of mounds there in their analysis. Yeah, no, you're right, you're right, you're right. So, do you believe that, again, I'll refer back to what, what, what Gannon and company indicated, that, you know, they say that there might be 12 uh, members of a cell Right, there might be uh, more or less. They're situated throughout the entire country. Are these, in your opinion, individual networks, or is there some type of communication, such as communicating through the dark web? In you know, Gannon and company indicate that they, at some point, had made contact with a member or members of of the group via the dark web. I was I would say in response to your question, excellent question, Mario. In response. All of the above. And now let me, let me explain to it this way. I like to relate it to the mafia, right? From the 1920s all the way through the 19s to the mid-1960s, the FBI proactively would communicate to media and to the population at large, there is no such thing as organized crime. Now, this is after top members of organized crime were arrested in the New York mountains in the late 1950s. I want to say around 1958. And that's a pretty formidable event in the history of the mafia because that was essentially when it had to be publicly recognized. However, in 1963, J. Edgar Hoover is still actively denying the existence of organized crime, otherwise known as the mafia, in Congress during congressional hearings. Now, this is after John F. Kennedy has been assassinated. Mm -hmm. Now, today, we know numerous members, be it Traficante or other you know, mafia leaders that were deeply involved, allegedly, in the JFK assassination. Well, back then, these weren't these were not household names. In fact, the FBI was still trying to proactively say they didn't exist. Fast forward till today, can make the same comparison. The FBI is proactively trying to say the smiley face killers don't exist when they're actively investigating it. They've been sending agents out to to every scene of that fit this victim profile since at least 2014. And in fact, it was mentioned by the district district attorney in the Dakota James episode of the Oxygen Network, referencing the district attorney met with an FBI agent and now a Secret Service agent. I couldn't begin to understand why the Secret Service would be interested, but I think it goes to show that there's uh, communications. No one's paying attention to these people. You know, if there's if the FBI is actively denying their existence. The, the, the mafia was able to thrive in that environment. And I think the smiley face killers were able to thrive in this environment. Okay. So that leads into my next questions regarding, regarding suspects. So in, in the daily beast article, they uh, get and company indicate that in three of the six profiled cases, they have suspects. My question is, how I don't know how they determine who the suspects are because in all the episodes I see no, I uh, hear nothing or see nothing regarding I don't latent fingerprints, video evidence. Um, I don't know how they found these people. Sure, well that's a great question, and I, I definitely have thought the same thing when I read the case studies book and drowning forensics from these fellows. I was able to to kind of reach a personal conclusion on that subject at least because it seems like. They've done an incredible amount of old-fashioned investigatory legwork, going out and talking to folks, visiting scenes, reenacting things. 
on and above the TV dramatizations that were included for the show. You know, some of those again were brilliant in their in their approach. However, they've done far more, uh, you know, amount of work than just depicted in that show. And I think Todd Guybe is an excellent example because going back to Todd Guybe, it seemed like they had identified a prime suspect of as somebody who would operate within the the uh, proposed perpetrator class of the smiley face killers being a cocaine dealer. And this cocaine dealer had a beef with Todd was present at the party, you know, so they, they've established intent capability and opportunity as it goes to that suspect, that cocaine dealer. So I think there's probably, they probably are sitting on a lot more details like that, that weren't even mentioned in their book that haven't been published because if you just look at Gilbert, Gilbertson and Gannon's own statements from their initial onset national media campaign in 2008, you know, the media immediately globbed onto the smiley face and wanted to focus on it and belittle anything else that was said. And in mm-hmm. fact, in numerous interviews, both individuals, Gilbertson and Gannon, are telling the media, well, look, the smiley face killer, the smart of the smiley face graffiti is only one symbol and a series of symbols and graffiti used to communicate. So then here's an obvious question. Maybe the, well, here's a question. Maybe the answer is obvious. Uh, if they have suspects, why are there, they sit, why are they sitting on the evidence? And the, the, the second part to that is, uh, Gilbertson and Gann, these folks are fairly easy to find. I mean, it's not like they're, you know, in protective custody or anything. Sure. Um, other than, the, you know, so, so why, why are they sitting on, on, on this evidence? Why aren't they, why aren't they reporting it? Because you've mentioned that it, it's not indicated or most of it isn't indicated in the book. It was not mentioned in uh, the TV show. And again, the only reference is that Daily Beast article where they say they have suspects in three of the six cases. So why... Why isn't that information being being uh, made made public? I suspect that they are not sitting on it. That they proactively try to incorporate district attorneys, you know, police chiefs as champions of 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 their project. District attorneys in which they can make decisions on opening up cases, etc. Who can form grand juries? Who can then you know indict or investigate suspects? Now, I, I, have no, I don't personally, after watching where they're at with some things in the TV show versus where they were at with things years ago through media, media interviews or other publications, other interviews, it seems like they've taken a lot of these cases very far. And I think it, it, a lot of it comes back to the, just the political stopping block on a lot of these matters where police departments don't want to reinvestigate things. You know, that, you know if it's an accidental drowning 10 years ago, there's not a lot of benefit, politically speaking, for a district attorney today to get involved in that. You know, there, it takes public uh, awareness, which I think the show is providing. It takes the efforts of the investigators, which those guys seem very dedicated. And I honestly think that the actual d- failure to disclose some of these additional details, whether it be the suspects or the reason why they suspect these individuals, is solely to maintain the um, the case, you know, if they don't want to jeopardize the case by, you know, releasing data, you know, that's why I think they don't release the additional graffiti symbols that are found at the scenes of many of these victims because they don't want to jeopardize their investigation. Do you think they've shared any of this information with the family members? Oh, I mean, it seems that way. Sure. Sure. I mean, it seemed like, 
it, I, I kind of got the impression that, you know, through, uh, for example, I listened, I'll be honest with you. I get, I get Google updates on the mm-hmm. subject and I was surprised to see any kind of Dr. Phil episodes or an oxygen network series. I was actually surprised when an FM radio station out of Boston continues to have these, you know, uh, both, um, Gannon and Duarte were on the last interview, but mm-hmm. I'm surprised when I see, you know, terrestrial radio stations that are willing to tackle the subject and have these men on there. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's a, it's a tough environment for any, any kind of media coverage, but I, I, I honestly think they try to incorporate, it seems like they try to incorporate the families, for example, in the radio interview that I'm referring to from October of last year in Boston, they included Will Hurley's mother. She called in. There was a conversation between the host, the detectives, the mother. They were all together, much like you see in the TV show. Yeah, they're all. They all appear to be getting support from these families. And I mean, you know, that's. I think that's a that's a positive step in the right direction. You know what? Uh, this this is going back a number of years, but. One of Minnesota's reporters for, uh, I think, the CBS affiliate WCCO, Christy Peel, had worked sure. very close in, with 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 Gilbertson and the rest of the folks. And I don't know what happened, but she sort of just moved on, even after winning that documentary or online reporting award or something. But she just sort of moved on off the smiley face uh, killer case, and I'm not quite sure why that even happened. Yeah, I, I uh, used to frequent her website, smileyfacekillers.com. It's still accessible through the Internet Archive. Does she anybody know why she just said, I'm done? I feel like I heard an interview with her later, maybe, and she was asked that or maybe made a comment somewhere online, mm-hmm. and it was something to the effect of uh, maybe, it was, maybe it was my perception of her statement. I'm not mm-hmm. sure if it was her exact statement, but it was something to the effect of, she was presented with, you can either have a career in news media, or you can go investigate the smiley face killers. Oh, you, you, you choose. Interesting. And, as they say, interesting. Right. But I think that's indicative of the larger attitude of the media on the subject. So let me ask you this. Uh, what's the, what's, I mean, m- maybe relates back to the, the, just the the points you raised earlier regarding the human sacrifices and mounds and what have you, but why keep the bodies for an extended period of time in bring them back to the scene of the crime if it is something other than the 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 mound theory, this the sacrifice theory that you mentioned earlier? Yeah, I don't you know I don't know other than maybe saying plausible deniability because of a of a drunk man. Young man disappears from an area you that you know would it would be reasonable to expect that the drunk man would appear in the area right there drowned if he was to drown. Yeah, I just I mean because if you look at so um, yeah, the BTK killer uh, 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 I forget I, there's still this I forget the other Dennis Dennis Rader in in the, Dennis Rader yep. And uh, there's another dude I've, I'm completely blanking on his name. Anyway, but if you look at it, those folks had, over the course of about 20 years, had killed people. So if if, if the serial killer um, time frame sort of holds true, chances are fairly good that within the next couple of years, uh, ser- uh, things may start happening regarding, I don't know, arrests, um, persons of interest, these types of things, which... Re- which 
leads into the next question that I have, and it kind of goes back to the statements made by Gannon and company in that Daily Beast article. But the question is, you know, snitches, rats, what have you. I mean, they state that if one person talks, it's just going to start to fall apart. But how do you keep a secret among, I don't know, dozens of people? I mean, it, it can't be six dudes. It can't be like the movie um, Along Came a Spider or whichever, where was the dude East Coast, dude West Coast, talking and kidnapping girls and, 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 sure. and what have you. I mean, it, it, sure. it, can't be, it can't be two people. It has to be. Yeah, I agree with you. It can't. In it's the ne- It's got to be a network. It's a network. So it's a you, philosophy. It's an you, understanding. How do you keep people's mouths shut? I think that studying groups such as gangs, cults, and the mafia, the Italian mafia, or whatever nationality mafia in general, um, I think you can start to see a pattern forming where, you know, again, the mafia thrived. You know, how do do they keep things secret? Well, it's traditionally through violence. They kill the person who tries to cross them, or cults traditionally blackmail folks through certain means. You know, this is also evident in gangs. Both actions are evident in gangs. The blackmail, the the killing any anyone uh, trying to cross the group. It's a very groupthink mentality at that point. But gangs even broadcast over you know YouTube and Facebook and very other social media sites. Sure. You know, initiation and you know beatdowns and what have you. Sure. I mean, historically, yeah, I think they function. Gang member. I'm sorry. You know who was a a mafia member because everybody knew. Well, I mean, they did, but the, the, the mafia just did not exist publicly for so many decades in this country. Right. So, I mean, it's often assumed that everybody knew, but it doesn't, you know, looking back, reading media reports and analyzing the social construct of the time, whether or not folks even considered this group of organized crime existing, and they didn't. It just wasn't, again, groups such as the FBI, other groups that alleged to study such criminal statistics at the time, claimed the FBI did not exist. There was no such thing as organized crime. Nothing, no crime in one town was connected to crime in another town. So, you know, these folks communicated magnificently without the internet. So I think studying, maybe studying their communication tactics could yield positive results on determining how a network of killers such as the Smiley Face Killers would be operating today. Now, I do think that they do have instances of people violating the rules of the cult of the gang. However, it's not quite the same as a regular street gang, because in my opinion, these individuals who are associated with these crimes have more of a psycho sexual, uh, religious aspect and religious bend to their activities. Their motivations are more sexually and religiously based. Now this might seem like opposing concepts to some people, but from my study cults, Gang, I mean, cult, cults, they have, if it's, if it's a cult, it's a sexual cult. It's a sex cult of some regard. For example, I'll even give you the antithesis of a sex cult, and that's the UFO cult, Heaven's Gate, out of the late 90s, out of San Diego. Right. They were an anti-sex cult. So it was still a sex cult. They were just an anti-sex cult. So I would the two concepts think, are very closely related. No, I got you. I would... Part of me thinks that over the course, there would be, I mean, if legitimate body markings, I mean, other than these, these, you know, smiley faces or numerous symbols or, you know, symbolism, the smiley face is one of many possible. I'm surprised there's not 
if it leans down your path, I'm surprised there's not uh, mark. Maybe there are. Maybe there are marks in the body that were never, you know, released to the public. I don't know. But I would just think that those would be type of 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 you know stigmata, I guess, or or tattoos to indicate, you know, that you're a member of this, you know, double top secret organization. Um, sure. I mean, I, 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 you know, and that leads into the question of, of recruitment. I mean, how is it as simple as, as we had discussed earlier, at least in the case of um, uh, Todd, Todd Geib, where doing drugs, doing cocaine, selling, whatever, whatever he was doing, that was the, uh, the, 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 the way in. And he, I don't know, pissed somebody off or did something, and it turned, uh, it turned badly for him. Well, I mean, I think in the case of Todd Guy, I think maybe, I don't think there's a great history of his involvement with drug use or cocaine, but maybe he was being introduced and it didn't take. You know, that, that could be a plausible scenario, I think, where they attempt to recruit. He's at the initial onset of recruitment. You know, or he's not in recruitment at all. He's merely straight up just a victim, victim. But, you know, I see what you're saying, and I often consider the same question because whenever I see, for example, organized groups of pedophilia that operate and there are organized groups of pedophilia and child sex trafficking that operate. It's an, it's an epidemic in this country. Thousands of kids are sex trafficked every day. Now right. when these, some of these groups get busted, I always wonder the same thing. How did that group form? How did the yeah. initial conversation happen? Did these two guys get together and ask each other if they enjoy diddling kids and the outcome is they, they decide to make a group and recruit other people that enjoy diddling kids. I don't honestly know how these groups form. It's, it's an interesting idea that I don't think has been answered in many organized groups, not just organized killers. So I think that's a question that needs to be understood, psychologically speaking, of how these groups form, how do the conversations occur, how do they meet new members, etc. But it's one that I don't think we have a good grasp on outside of other crimes besides homicide. You know, for, for me and my just general inquisitiveness, I'd, you know, go find some open source software. I'd, you know, download my favorite VPN and, uh, you know, find some torrent or dark web browser. And, uh, I don't know, <laughs> just start searching around, which is sure. uh, probably a really stupid thing for me to say. But how, I mean, it's not like you can just... I mean, you, you sound like you're out of that age cohort that people are searching for, right? For victims. But I definitely, it, I definitely graduated from that age, but there was a time that I certainly fell directly within the wheelhouse of, yeah. of the SFK victim. But the thought is, sure. I mean, not saying you want to put yourself in that situation, but you kind of want to put yourself in that situation or be able to observe something like that. I mean, I'll be honest, seeing this po possibly could weigh in on my belief and in many aspects of this theory or how I see many aspects of this theory and the incidents that, that surround it is I I've been a drunken young male in thousands of bars on nearly every continent in this world. And I've seen the underbellies of society. I've witnessed strange incidents, events, etc. going out partying till all hours of the morning. So Maybe I have a better understanding, personally speaking, that I could see where, you know, I'll be honest with you, if you go out after midnight in many cities, you're going to see a much different environment and atmosphere than you saw during the daytime. Yeah. I'll just leave it at that. So there are these underbellies of society, whether or not we want to recognize it or not.
now in this area of society do a cult of killers operate? I, I do tend to think the evidence certainly points in that direction. I mean, for me, it, it, it's interesting to think about how you take any local bar and take the, the, the patrons of that local bar that fall into that demographic, and you just wonder, how did you end up picking that one person? Or is it just simply because so-and-so just happened to walk the opposite direction of his two or three friends, which could happen, but then again, Gannon and company indicate that these folks are you know, targeted and you wonder sure. uh, how, how, how are they, how are they picked out from the hundreds and thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of, of college age men that fall into that category? I, I honestly think that, that in many instances, they're not targeted the night of their victimization. They're targeted in advance. How that is great question. It requires additional investigation, additional investigation that none of these cases outside of the efforts of folks like Gilbert and Gannon and their team have provided because, for example, one of the common misconceptions, and I think the Center for Homicide Research points this out, or maybe even the FBI, that there's no commonalities between the victims. We've described how many of the victims look alike. They have similar you know, characteristic attributes, physical attributes. Now, but what if I was to tell you that two of the victims knew each other? They died 20 months apart in two different states. Wait, who knew, knew each other? Wait, wait, Jer what? Uh, yeah, they didn't. This was not covered in, in oh. the TV series. Jared Dion, he was a lacrosse Wisconsin victim in, in April of 2004. And Matt Kruzicki, he was a he was deceased on the border of Illinois and Iowa on uh, maybe December of 2005. So How 20 months later, they wrestled on the same varsity high school wrestling team. They went to high school together. Same varsity high school wrestling team. We're talking maybe a dozen people on a varsity high school wrestling team. Two dozen, you know. These guys knew each other. They oh. knew each other intimately. Now, I like to use that example to point out the debunkers. that There are commonalities between some of the victim class, and maybe there are additional ones. We just don't know it because it's never been investigated. Now, Matt Krasicki's father was the sheriff of one of the northern counties of milwaukee there in wisconsin and he could not there was not political power enough for that man to help solve his own son's death and on top of that one of the other victims there in minnesota chris jenkins maybe halloween 2003 i believe he disappeared was found later in the mississippi river his death has since been ruled a homicide Thanks to efforts such as, you know, yeah. his parents, Gilbert and Gannon, um, Gilbertson and Gannon. Now, I use him as an example to show, yeah, the, the efforts of an actual investigation can yield. We've seen it in the TV show since. But until then, until the TV show and Brian Welzine, one of the only cases that's been turned into a homicide investigation has been the case of Chris Jenkins. Now, I also use Chris Jenkins as an example in the fact that his uncle, I believe it was his mother's, his mother wrote a book on the subject. I believe it was his mother's brother. He was, the, the victim's uncle, was a special agent in charge of a division of the FBI. There's like 10 of those guys. And this is the position the man was in at the time that Chris Jenkins was a victim of a, what appears to be the smiley face killers. And there were some solid suspects in that case as well. 
So I think that there, you know, upon further investigation, many other details will be yielded. And just to show you the political nature of it, not even an individual such as a special agent in charge of a division of the FBI could weigh politically enough into getting his family members case solved. It's still an open homicide investigation. The, the show ended with six. We have a few minutes left. The show ended with six episodes. I have tried to find out if there are any, uh, any information online regarding a second season. I have not been able to find anything. So I don't know if, if the series is coming back. Um, I don't know. I would love to see it back. I thought it was an excellent expose on, you know, trying to trying to formulate this complex situation into a condensed, you know, uh, TV show that the folks could could understand when they watched it. It wasn't like, oh, well, this is a mystery. Like, for example, the Todd Guy study on with the pigs in the water. I mean, right. Watching, I would be I would be surprised if folks could watch that and not be compelled to to to, to see the evidence that the Todd was murdered. And the thing is, is if it doesn't come back, what does that mean? Yeah, I mean that's they a good question. Say they don't, they don't renew it. It's, it's okay. So does that lend more support to the cover-up, or does it lend support to the fact that you know it's as they say now in the political realm, it's a big nothing burger? Right. I, right. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I think it's an open question, Mark Mario, and one. It's a good, good one to, to hopefully that you know to answer here in the near future because these cases aren't stopping. The, the perpetrators are continuing. So does, how, how does somebody, if it doesn't come back, how does somebody in your position, how do you continue to get the information out when most of the uh, avenues of, of information, a majority of people don't, don't, don't have access to? Or don't purposely subscribe to. I mean, I use oxygen, right? People are going to be able to watch the channel because it's part of some cable subscription and it can sure. you can advertise. But regarding other platforms, how do you, how does the message stay out there? It's difficult. I mean, I've spent the last ten or eleven years actively, you know, educating folks on the topic. You know, when I was in, when I was still in the Air Force, my Air Force years. You know, on a Friday, I'd be happy to give a safety briefing to some of my troops, letting them know when you're out at the bar, watch your drink men's drinks do get drugged. You know, right. you don't have to go into the great depth of why they get drugged, but you know, I think just the mere education of that is helping underst- folks understand that, you know, it, not just women are victims, you know, there are men that are being victimized and that's a concept lost on many. Like the mere education is, is step one in the process. That, that is, that is a great way to end it. I, JJ, I want to thank you 150%, which makes no sense because you can't do more than a hundred percent, but uh, I've, I mean, I've, I've scoured the Twitter universe and attempted to talk to some people and some people were very open and saying, you know what, I'd love to do it, but I want to be independent and I don't want to have my information out there, which, which was fine. Um, Certainly. you know, there were some scheduling issues with, with William. I think he'll be here uh, next week, but again, I, I thank you uh, very much. This has been very informative. Um, I, I'm happy that I came into this with an open mind because at first I thought, oh, this, this seems a bit bad shit crazy. Um, but uh, it has that appearance. You, you've done a very nice job of, of kind of laying it out in this. You know what? Let's just put all the the, the bullshit to the side and look at this from a, a logical point of view. So well, Mario, I, I enjoyed every minute of it. I always enjoyed discussing this. Again, it's it's an education aspect for me. 
like to tell folks this is something to be aware of. They can tell other folks. I think what we've done to here is a service for folks listening to this conversation, understanding the topic. And I highly recommend William Ramsey's work. He's done an excellent job at kind of capturing what I refer to as the psychosexual religious aspects of this gang and in his documentary and his, and he can speak to that great, great source of information. I won't, I definitely won't ruin his, his, his shtick, but uh, anytime you need, you need to discuss this in the future, please let me know. I'm happy to come back on Mario. All right, sir. You have yourself a nice weekend and thank you again. You too. Thank you. Bye.